Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're working our way through the Gospel of John. This morning we come to verse 35 through verse 59. This is God's inerrant word. Please give it your full attention. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. We began last week to look at this statement, really a very remarkable statement by Jesus Christ. You find it in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Think about what he is promising there. He is promising to meet every need in your life. 
to put you in a state of complete satisfaction where you have no needs, ultimately, spiritually, physically, to be totally at peace and content. I think living in what is materialistically a very overindulgent and materialistic culture, we fail to feel the power of what Jesus is offering here. I think about what I've heard about families that have adopted children from poverty-stricken third-world countries. When they adopt these children, a lot of times when they first bring them into the home, what they'll find is that the children will start sneaking and stealing bread from the the dinner table and sticking it in their pocket and then hiding it in their bed and keeping it with them as much as possible because they don't yet trust that their need for food will be met consistently. And I think a lot of times as children of God, we're kind of like that. We've been adopted by God's grace into his family and yet So much of what it means to become more mature and stronger in our faith means letting go of those earthly things that we find our peace and security in and and just really trusting that the Lord will provide for all our needs. Jesus here is, as you remember, speaking to a large crowd, at least a remnant of a large crowd, that began when he fed the 5,000 with, or actually closer to 15,000 probably, with women and children, with just a few pieces of bread and a couple of fish. And we saw how this massive crowd had been following them from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other Sea of Galilee and back again. He was very, very popular because of his teaching and his miracles. But when he got back to Capernaum, he entered into this dialogue with them. And you would think, as he says, I am the bread of life who has the power and will promise you, if you will come to me in faith, that I will meet every need in your life. You would think that these people would be enthusiastically embracing this promise and committing themselves to following him. In every aspect of their lives. But what we have seen as this dialogue has continued through chapter 6. Is that the people are getting increasingly skeptical. About Jesus claims and his teaching. And they're eventually even going to become hostile towards him. And I think it's because. Jesus is increasingly during this dialogue communicating to them what it means to come to him, what it means to look to him as the bread of life, that it entails a radical whole life commitment and an understanding of who he is that they weren't ready to confess. Look at verses 41 and 42 right there in the middle of the passage that I just read. It says, Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And Notice how the crowd scoffs at that. They said, you know, we know you. You're that poor carpenter's son, the son of Mary and Joseph from Nazareth. How can you claim to be the bread of life that satisfies all needs who has come down from heaven? And it's interesting that Jesus responds to that challenge by actually I think more so than talking to the skeptics and the crowd that is about to depart from him and stop following him, he actually, I think, is talking more to those who are coming to him in faith in the rest of this chapter. 
And he's giving those who truly will come to him and put their faith in him, not just a promise, but a guarantee of eternal, consistent, total satisfaction of all needs of body and soul. He's really promising that Hebrew concept of shalom, peace, prosperity, well-being, absence of sin and strife, and fullness of the cup that overflows that the scriptures promise. And he really addresses the question of how can we be sure? How can we trust him? How can we know that if we come to Christ in true faith, how can we know and have the guarantee that he will fulfill this promise of ultimate satisfaction? I'm reminded of the old evangelism explosion questions. If you've been around the church for a while, you know that evangelism explosion was one of the most popular evangelistic training methods that was used It's uh, kind of fallen out of vogue lately, but many of us still remember those two diagnostic questions. And the first question, when you're trying to share the gospel with somebody, the first question you try to work the conversation towards is, have you reached the place in your spiritual life where if you were to die today that you are sure that you would go to heaven? And the reason that that was, even though a very simple question, a very important question to ask The reason it was a diagnostic question is because it got to what is the basis of a person's hope. Because a lot of people will call themselves Christians. But I remember going through the training and and, and training others and doing the evangelism explosion in in the neighborhoods. And I remember people often, almost more often than not, either they would answer, no, I don't know that. Or the more common answer was, I hope so. I think so. I'm trying. You get those kind of answers. And what that kind of answer told you is that they don't understand the gospel. If you only are wishing or hoping or trying for salvation, then you don't understand the gospel. Jesus here gives a guarantee of eternal, continual satisfaction to those who will come to him in faith. And he bases it on three things. The first thing he bases it upon is the sovereign will of God the Father. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus here is pointing to the beginning of our salvation. Our salvation, if you are saved today, if you're truly trusting in Christ and you are saved today, your salvation did not begin at that moment when you got on your knees and prayed the sinner's prayer and put your faith in Christ. Jesus is pointing back way before that. He's pointing back to that moment when God the Father gave to his Son a people, a flock. The elect, he gave a people to his son to be saved. And when did that happen? According to scripture, Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. It didn't happen in history, Paul tells us here in Ephesians 1. It happened before history. He says, he, God the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. There is profound security in understanding what Paul is saying there, and that is what Jesus is alluding to here in John 6. That your salvation, if you truly come to Christ in faith, then your salvation began before the foundation of the world when God the Father gave, chose us and gave us to his Son so that his Son might redeem us and bring us to himself that we might become holy. Holy children of God. And you notice in Ephesians 1, Paul tells us what that choice was based upon. It wasn't based upon God looking into the future and seeing some choice or action on our part. It was based upon, to quote Paul exactly, it was according to the purpose of his will. It was not based upon anything in us. It was based upon his sovereign will alone. So understand what Jesus is saying here. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The origin of your salvation, if you have come to Christ in faith, the origin of your salvation happened before the world began. And it was the choice of you was based upon the sovereign will of God alone, not upon anything that you have chosen or anything that you have done yourself. The sovereign will of God the Father is a very, very firm foundation for your assurance of your salvation. Listen to how God uh, describes and defines his sovereign will in Isaiah 46. There, Isaiah the prophet, speaking for God, gives us this word, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That's a firm foundation for your assurance is the will and the plan of God the Father. And that's what Jesus is alluding to if you pick up the reading in chapter 6, beginning in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God's will, his eternal will, determined before creation happened, his eternal will is that we be given to Christ. And God's will for Christ was that he save us and keep us and not lose us until the plan of redemption was complete when he returns again. So understand that the only threat to your salvation, if you have truly come to Christ in faith, would have been if the Son had failed to do the will of the Father. And we know that he hasn't. He has come and he has accomplished the will of the Father. 
his promise. He actually spells it out again over in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The will of the father and the will of the son are one. And that is the basis of our confidence. The will of the Father, the eternal will of the Father. If you have come to Christ in faith, then your future rests upon the unchangeable will of God the Father. And nothing can frustrate his will and nothing can thwart his will. Secondly, Jesus points not just to the will, the sovereign will of God the Father, but the work of the Holy Spirit. If you move on to the next paragraph, look at verses 44 and 45 there. Jesus is describing the work in history of the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking of the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation, even though he doesn't name the Holy Spirit here. Later on, he'll make it clear that he's talking about what the Holy Spirit does in our lifetimes to fulfill the will of the Father. There Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What happened before you came to Jesus Christ and put your faith in him if you are truly a Christian? What happened before that? What Jesus is saying here, what must happen before that is that you be drawn by the Father. Well, how does the Father draw us? He does it through the work of the Holy Spirit. Draw or draws is probably not the best English translation for that word. If you look at the original word in the Greek, draws is not the best translation. When we hear the word of drawing something, you might think of words in English that we would use as synonyms for that. You might think of like invite or woo, if you ever use that word, or persuade or entice. That's the, that would be the kind of words you would think of synonyms for draw. But if you go to the original Greek, those would not be synonyms for the, the, Greek, the word the original Greek. Let me to just give you a sense of what the word that's translated there draws, what it means in the original Greek. Let me take you to a few other verses that use the same word. John 21, in chapter 21 of John's Gospel, it talks about after his resurrection when Jesus did a miracle by telling the disciples to cast their nets on the other side of the boat after they had not been able to catch any fish all night. And you remember what happened is they threw their nets on the other side of the boat and they had this huge catch of fish. Listen to what it says in verse in chapter 21. It says, so they cast the net and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The word haul in there is the same word that John uses here in chapter six for draw. They were not able to draw it in. They were not able to haul it in. Even more graphically, over in in Acts chapter 16, it's talking there about the fortune teller owners. Remember that, that Paul cast the demon out of a fortune teller and the owner of that fortune tellers, the owners were angry at Paul. And this is what it says. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. That's the same Greek word. They grabbed a hold of Paul and Barnabas and dragged them into the marketplace. 
Acts 21 verse 30 is about the angry crowd of Jews in the temple who thought that Paul had brought a a Gentile into the temple, into a forbidden part of the temple. And so you have this angry crowd and it says the people ran together and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. I guarantee you that the crowd did not woo Paul out of the temple. They did not invite Paul out of the temple. They did not persuade Paul to leave the temple. They drew him out of the temple in the same way that the disciples drew the fish out of the lake. Dragged is probably not the best word to use here, though, in this context, even though I I tend to think of what C.S. Lewis said about his own conversion. He talks about being dragged, kicking and screaming into the kingdom as a converted atheist, but and I do think there's a sense in which God works that way in many lives, but I don't think dragged is probably, you wouldn't say, I don't think Jesus, many say that God drags by the Holy Spirit people into the kingdom. Probably the best English word I could come up with is the word compels, because compels means that you are not brought in against your will, but you are brought into the kingdom by a transformation of your will. And I think that's the biblical picture of the work of the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit does not bring people into the kingdom, generally speaking, dragging them, kicking and screaming. But what he does is he transforms their hearts so that they are now able to seek and love and want to know and want to believe and want to submit and want to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a compelling work of the Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus meant when he said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless a man is born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, is to take a cold, spiritually dead heart out of a sinner like you and me and replace it with a living heart that wants to seek God, to know God, to know the truth, and to bow a knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes on in verse 45 to quote the message of the prophets. He says that they in the day in that day will be taught by God. He's speaking of an internal teaching of God that happens by the Holy Spirit. It's the promise that Jeremiah gave when he talked about the new covenant when the Messiah comes. He says, this is the covenant that I will make. This is Jeremiah 31 verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. That's the redeeming, regenerating, revealing, illuminating work of the Holy Spirit in those whom God the Father before the foundation of the world has chosen. That's the work of the Spirit. He gives them a new heart and he teaches them who God is and puts the law of God in their heart in such a way and gives them the power to obey. That's the saving, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So this is the second basis of assurance that Jesus gives us for our salvation. First of all, the sovereign, eternal will of God the Father. Secondly, the regenerating, teaching, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit will not fail. Just as the Son will not fail, the Holy Spirit will not fail to accomplish His mission. The third basis of assurance that Jesus gives us in this passage is His own work. The work of the Son of God. Jesus drives His point home with a shocking statement in verse 51. Read that again carefully. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He caught the Jews' attention with that statement. The Jews, again, like everybody, it seems, in the first six chapters of the book of John, they take him too literally. And so they're horrified. By this statement that Jesus makes. And they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, knowing how this all turns out, I find myself expecting and kind of wondering why Jesus didn't respond by saying, well, haven't you ever heard of a metaphor? Um, I'm not talking about cannibalism here. I'm, I'm talking about deeper spiritual things. That's what I expect Jesus to say here. But he doesn't do that, does he? What he does, you know, he actually strengthens the statement, makes it even more objectionable to these literalistic Jews. You know, it's statements like this that caused the early church to be persecuted because there were many people in the first century in the Roman Empire who really believed the Christians were cannibals because they talked about eating the Lord Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper because they were taking them too literally. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't respond by getting into abstract metaphors and and, and truths. He actually makes the statement more graphic, graphic in the next verse. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. If you know anything about Jewish culture, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll know that Jesus just made that statement a lot worse because he not only talked about eating the flesh like a cannibal, he also talked about drinking the blood. And if there's anything that the Jews knew that you don't do when you're consuming something is that you don't eat or even touch blood. So what was Jesus saying? First of all, this is one of those cases where these were people whose hearts were hardened They weren't going to be willing to listen to the truth, no matter how plain and simple Jesus made it. So it's one of the same reasons why I think Jesus taught in parables. That those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, they're going to understand what he's saying. But those who are against him, who are who are rejecting him, are going to be clueless about what he's saying. But what he's really referring to, and the fact that he brings the blood here makes it makes it very clear, takes you back to Leviticus chapter 17. Every Jew would know this verse. Very important verse for understanding the religion of the Old Testament Jewish people. Leviticus chapter 17, beginning in verse 10. I will set, this is God the Father speaking, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you, I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The blood represented death. Our life is in our blood, so the shedding of blood is, is, a, is a symbol of death. And that's why the sacrifices were given to Old Testament Israel to say that because of our sin, the wages of sin is death, blood must be shed, and the only way of salvation is through the shedding of the blood of a substitute. 
In chapter 1, John said that the Word, God's Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. And here, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and the bread that I give you is my flesh. What he's saying is, I am going to lay my flesh on the line for your sin. I am going to allow my flesh to be nailed to the cross, and I am going to stand in your place, and I am going to bear the wrath of God that your sins deserve in your place. I am giving my flesh to you that you might live. Jesus isn't talking about the Lord's Supper directly here. None of the people listening to him would have had any connection to the Lord's Supper at this point. But he is talking very much about what the Lord's Supper represents, which is the broken body and the poured out blood of Christ that paid for your salvation. The bread had to be broken before it could be distributed to his disciples that they might eat of the bread of life and live. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that when you come to him, you cannot just come to him as a miracle worker. You can't just come to him as a wise teacher. You must come to him as Christ crucified. You must feed upon him as Christ crucified because that is the only way of salvation. And what he's saying here is that your assurance... Your certainty that you will be saved and eternally satisfied in the kingdom of God is not only based on the eternal sovereign will of God the Father, not only based upon the regenerating and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, but ultimately it is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ crucified on the cross. And it's only by accepting Him in that way that you know that your sins are forgiven And that you are saved. It's what Paul was trying to say in that very familiar passage in Romans 5. Where he says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Incredible confidence based upon the finished work of Christ. Assurance, continual assurance comes not from looking to anything within ourselves or in our lives, but from looking to the cross every day. That's how you live in certainty. If you have truly come to faith in Christ, you can be certain that you will end up in heaven And eventually in the new heavens and the new earth, with every need in your life met completely, perfectly, body and soul. You can be certain of that because of the will of the Father, the sovereign, unchangeable will of God the Father, the irresistible, transformative power of God the Spirit, and the complete atonement for our sins won for us on the cross by God the Son. None of our certainty is based upon anything within us, not how strong our faith is, not how consistent our obedience is, not based on anything within us. It's based upon the cross of Jesus Christ, ultimately, the will of God the Father and the work of the Son. 
Salvation is of the Lord. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul was sure, not only of his own salvation, but of the salvation of everyone who truly comes to Christ crucified by faith. Application. Just two powerful effects, I think, to assurance that's based in the Lord and not in ourselves. First of all, the more certain you are about your future satisfaction in the kingdom of God, the more sure you are of that salvation, the less you're going to fear today as you live your life every day. I think about this in relation to my now grown children. It's kind of an interesting stage of life to have adult children and watching them and to have adult children who have not only confessed Christ but are now living for Christ and serving Christ in many different ways. It's a very fulfilling thing as a parent. But it does kind of make you look back and regret all those fears you had in those dark days of early parenthood when you thought your children were going to grow up and become axe murderers. You know, you really just regret all those serious, those silly fears now, don't you, when you see your adult children loving the Lord and walking in faith. Well, think about it. If you have come to Christ because of the will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the, and the work of the Spirit, you know that it's all going to work out. You're going to be okay. You're going to serve Christ until the day you die, and when you die, you're going to be with him forever. You know that. You're certain of it. Because of what he's done. You can live your life every day without fear. Don't waste fear on what's coming. Because you can be sure of your salvation in Christ. In 1 John four seventeen and 18, this is what John says. For this, by this love... By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so we are also in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That's what John's saying. Don't live in fear because punishment's been taken care of at the cross. Secondly, the more certain we are, about our future satisfaction in the kingdom of God and our complete salvation in Christ, the more we're going to work for the kingdom today and tomorrow and the day after that until Christ comes again. Why is that? Well, again, let me put it to you in, in earthly terms. What if you could turn the clock back, knowing what you know today, turn the clock back to 1970 and think, and you've got maybe a few thousand dollars, and you think, where could I invest this money? What if you, you know, knowing what you know today, could go back there and invest in Walmart in 1970? Think about how wealthy you would be today if you just had that foresight. Or if you, back 40 years ago, you knew what North Atherton was going to look like today, and you could buy a good chunk of that property back in 1970. Think about how wealthy you could be today. Well, you are heirs of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's guaranteed to you if you have come to faith in him. You are wealthy in the future far beyond your comprehension or imagination. The scripture makes our future very clear. So therefore, today, we need to invest in those eternal things. And the more certain you are of that future 
the more you're not going to invest in earthly temporal things, you're going to invest in those eternal things where your real wealth will be for eternity. Let me close with my favorite benediction. I use this often to close our services, but let me close the sermon with my favorite benediction. It's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sure hope of the gospel. Father, we don't deserve this. We don't know why you've chosen to give it to us. But we're so deeply thankful. Lord, help us to live with that eternal perspective. Forgive us for our fears. Help us to grow in maturity and confidence and more effectiveness in serving the kingdom of Christ in our day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.